let's pray. Go before the Lord. Father, there was a time when David was in a situation with no way out. He was surrounded by Saul's army. Saul hated him, wanted to destroy him. David was on the run for years and years. David was anointed to be the next king after Saul, the first king. Um, refused to obey you and your commands. He never had a heart for you. It was all exterior with him. The appearance of being religious. But you said of David that he was a man after your own heart. He was a sinner like all of us, a great sinner like all of us. But he had a heart for you. And in those years when he was on the run, he found himself at, in Getty, in that canyon, that very steep canyon that we can still visit today steep walls going up hundreds of feet and there are caves everywhere 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 you look you can see caves in those walls and he was surrounded by Saul's army and he had burrowed in somewhere and they were going through that terrain cave by cave and he could not see any way out. And in Psalm 57, he said, I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Um, it's been translated different ways. I will cry to God most high. To God who will accomplish his purpose in my life. It's been translated to God who is the transactor of all my affairs. They all fit. But there are times in life when we find ourselves hemmed in. Perhaps in a, a situation that we have created or a, an ambush that has been set for us by someone who has issues with us. It, it might be a financial, it might be a business, it might be a relational thing. We are in, we are in trouble, and there's no way out. Now, undoubtedly, with as many geysers in this room, there are some, and that's where they are tonight. They can't see their way clear, they can't see an exit sign. And David reminded himself of the truth. He didn't panic, but he reminded himself of the truth. And he cried out to you in his spirit. He couldn't do it verbally because they'd hear him. But from his heart, he was crying out. He was reaching out. It wasn't a, 
It wasn't a calm prayer. It was a desperate prayer. I will cry to God most high. Saul was high, but you were most high. For those men who are in that situation and they see different individuals that perhaps are involved in this against them, uh, those in authority, those that are in high positions, they're high, you're most high. So you're in charge of the situation. And we remind ourselves that you are the God who is the transactor of all our affairs. All the transactions of my life you're in charge of. From the womb to the tomb. And part of the Christian life, sometimes we're on the mountain, sometimes we're in the valley. And we're in the valley, it's the last place we want to be, especially on another occasion he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of deepest darkness, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. When we find ourselves in these spots, we have to remember you and remember your word and that you will accomplish what you have determined to happen in our lives. No one can thwart that plan. So I pray tonight that that will be an encouragement and that our eyes will not be on men or on people in positions of power or institutions that are against us, I pray that our eyes will be upon you. You are the God who delivers. You are the God who rescues. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Most of us in here who walked with you for any length of time have been in desperate straits and we have called on you and you have rescued us and got us out of something we thought we'd never get out of. And there, be, there may be peace now, and we thank you for the peace. But there will be another situation down the road if we're not in it now. And you will be as faithful then as you were in the past. We remind ourselves of this. We thank you for the truth, and we thank you for your faithfulness. And that you're a forgiver of sinners. That's us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we are in a new semester, and we're picking up again our study of the Ten Commandments. Tonight, we are looking at the Seventh Commandment, Exodus 20, 14, which says, You shall not commit adultery. Notice that it does not say, thou shall not have an affair. It's interesting, isn't it, how we like to play with terminology. I'm always fascinated by those who are in rebellion to God and to his truth and to his ways, and who organize themselves in rebellion against him to do things that are clearly um, forbidden in Scripture, like you shall not murder. There is a group called Planned Parenthood. 
nothing could be further from the truth. But you see, that's got a better ring to it than planned murderhood, doesn't it? The word adultery is offensive to our culture. Pretty much everything is offensive to our culture. We live in a very uh, sensitive culture. Uh, you, you can look at them the wrong way and they're offended. If there's anything our culture loves, it's absolute sexual freedom and anarchy. They love it. Even though they know the potential cost of it, it doesn't matter. They'll go ahead and pursue it, even if it costs them their lives, even if it costs them their health. They love it. They look at these commands and they say, these Ten Commandments, how strict, how, uh, how narrow, how... Uh, that, that, that chafes against my freedom. The fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is that if these commands were to be obeyed, they would greatly increase the well-being of every person. These commands are not given to diminish our joy. These commands are not given to suppress our pleasure in life. They are given to us to show us a better way. But when it comes to this one, that's very hard to swallow. Tim Tebow got engaged this past week. Um, Mary and I have been friends with his parents, Bob and Pam, for 45 years. We went to seminary together. And uh, Pam was working, put Bob through, and Mary had come, and I met her there. She was, long story, but she'd gone to the university, she had worked at Campus Crusade, University of Florida. Bob and Pam were from the University of Florida. Florida, no, no uh, surprise, Tim went to the University of Florida. Um, but we're, in, we're all in seminary. So we've known, you know, known each other a long time, and every year, we'll get a Christmas card from the Tebos. And so, you know, a week before Christmas, I'm sorting through mail and Christmas cards, Christmas cards, you know, looking at them, you know. And there's the Tebow Christmas card. And they, they got a bunch of kids and they got all kinds of grandkids. And, they, you know, it's a family picture and I'm looking at it and I'm just kind of scanning it. And Tim's standing over on the right side. And, and I stopped because there's this girl, young woman standing next to him. And I thought, who's that? And there was no explanation. Uh, everybody knew, I mean, they send it to friends and family, you know, that knows the family, so it just was a picture. I'm thinking, did they adopt her? I mean, what, 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 what is the deal? And, uh, and it comes out, what, two weeks later, three weeks later? Ah, okay. Why do I bring that up? I bring it up because Tim has been mocked for years for his stand on sexual immorality. And he was real clear. 
I'm following Christ, and I haven't had sex, and I won't have sex until I get married. I think it was when he um, was signed by the New York Jets that they had that, that large press conference. Well, you know, New York City, New York media, they're all there. And they're shooting questions at him. And I don't remember the exact, I don't remember the exact details, but I remember they were shooting questions at him and somebody said to him, I'm, I'm going to give you the gist of this. And they're all, you know, Tim, Tim, you know, or it's like, you know, they're all yelling out questions. It's kind of chaotic. It's really noisy. There's a lot of people. And one guy yells at him, hey, Tim, is it true you're a virgin? And they all start laughing. And he smiles and he goes, yeah, yeah, it is. I, uh, yeah, I, I believe that's what the Lord wants me to do. And uh, I haven't had sex. And I'm not going to have sex until I get married. And it got absolutely still. And then Tim started laughing. I mean, he just started laughing. And he's laughing and he says, you know what's hilarious? You guys never shut up and I've never seen you be quiet. But you know what's, you know what's hilarious? You can't handle that, can you? You can't handle it. And he is cracking up. He's laughing at them. He's not mocking them. He just thinks it's hilarious that he is going to follow what God says. And <laughs> I mean, he said, this is a special moment. Words to that effect. I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but that's what he was saying. And it, he, he wasn't intimidated by their questions. He, wasn't, he was just calm. He knew who he was. He was it cracked him up. Our culture can't believe, they cannot believe that someone, a strong young guy, could live without sex. Tim is healthy. Tim has not died prematurely. Uh, it can be done. They think it can't be done. No, it can be done. It won't kill you. Is it easy? No. Is it possible? Sure. By Christ and his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to say is that it's laughable to our culture, this command, you shall not commit adultery. We're going to be on this commandment, not just tonight, but for several weeks, because there's so much involved in this commandment. Um, I've quoted before from Wayne Grudem's book on Christian ethics, a little nightstand reading, you know, as you go in the bed. Uh, this is a great book on, on ethics, and it, uh, it's all based on the Ten Commandments. All ethics, all law in Western culture has been based on the Ten Commandments. And his section on thou shall not commit adultery is over 190 pages long. Because when he talks about thou shalt not commit adultery, you see what that command is really doing is that that command is given as a protection of marriage. That's what this command is about. 
So when you talk about marriage, when you talk about adultery, you first have to talk about marriage. And then when, let me get back to the table of contents. I'll just show you how he's going to do this. Part five in the book is called Protecting Marriage. And the command is you shall not commit adultery. So the first chapter is marriage. And then in marriage, you know, you got the whole issue of having kids. That's one of the purposes of marriage. It's not just having sex. It's just not doing sexual gymnastics. It's having children. Because if no one has kids, the human race ceases to exist. This is one of the things, just this is one of the logical things that makes gay marriage absolutely ludicrous. Because up until recent times, through the use of technology, you, you know where I'm going. It takes male and female to have kids. Now, you can mess around with technology, but one of the purposes of marriage is having children to continue the race. So he has his first chapter is on marriage, second chapter is on birth control. Different Christians have a different view on birth control. And then he's got a chapter on infertility, reproductive technology, and adoption. Because that's all tied in under the heading of you shall not commit adultery, which is based on the cornerstone of marriage. And then he's got a chapter on pornography, and then he's got a chapter on divorce and remarriage, and then he's got a chapter on homosexuality and transgenderism. We're going to cover this tonight. It's a little joke. It's a lot of stuff. Now, are we going to cover all this? No. But we're going to cover some of it in the weeks to come. Um, what I want to do tonight is I, I kind of want to do an introduction to this, and I want to back up and kind of get a running start at it is what I want to do. I mentioned that our culture... Our culture doesn't like authority. Our culture doesn't like to be told what to do. And that's one reason why our culture does not like to acknowledge the existence of God. But he's there, and they know he's there. Romans 1 says that every person knows that God exists. This is in verse 18 in Romans 1. Because God has written the truth about himself in their hearts, they know it. And secondly, they know he's there by observing the creation. They know Therefore, they were there without excuse. And even though they knew God, they didn't acknowledge him as God, but they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. If God's there, then he's the authority, and you've got to bow the knee, and you've got to submit. We don't want to do that. So one of the things we do in order to escape his authority, we'll even redefine our terms, as I mentioned. So instead of using the term adultery, we'll say, we'll talk about an affair. An affair. No, no, that word goes down a little more easily, doesn't it? An affair. It was just a, an affair. Kind of a light word, kind of an airy word, like quiche. An affair. Years ago, I, I spoke with Family Life. They put on marriage conferences all over the country. They had a great definition of an affair. And their definition was this. An affair is an escape from reality or a search for meaning outside the marriage. That's adultery. 
they were using the common vernacular. An affair is an escape or assert, an escape from reality. What's real? You're married, you made a commitment. Before God. It's an escape from reality and it is a search for meaning outside the marriage. When I was a kid, every year, we would go to a fair. We would go to the county fair, the Kern County Fair in California, every year. And it was wonderful. I can still remember being a little kid in the back seat. And off in the distance, you know, where is it? Where is it? You're, you're all excited and there are no seat belts and I'm bouncing all over the, you know, the back seat and I'm getting up in the front between my mom and dad and there's metal dashboards and, you know, seat belt. It was great. There was a lot of freedom back then. <laughs> but uh, I can remember it. And I remember finally, uh, you could see the top of the Ferris wheel off in the horizon. And then we're going to a fair. And so we get to the fair, and there was a Ferris wheel, and there was a merry-go-round, and you had cotton candy, and you did all, play all these games, and it was, oh, it was just, it was, it was so much fun. It was, it was a fair. God doesn't call it an affair. He calls it adultery. And it's serious. Why does God say you shall not commit adultery? Because this command is designed to protect the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage was designed by God to be the fundamental cornerstone of all human society, in all cultures, in all nations, in all chapters of history for all time. It's the fundamental building block. And I'll say it again. God gave this in order to protect marriage and everyone would be better off if these commands and the command to not commit adultery would be obeyed. So Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. If you're still in Exodus 20, you can look at verse 17, which is the 10th commandment and the last commandment, and it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Same thing. Let's go to Matthew 5, verse uh, 27, 32. Just some introductory remarks here as we launch into this. In Matthew 5, and, and, and here's the thing, when you stop and think about the family, about marriage being the fundamental building block, um, and I'm going to get to Matthew here, but when, when you go to Genesis, God creates, and God creates in six days, and God creates a man. And from the man, he takes a woman, after the man had been by himself for a while. And God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, up until then, everything in Genesis, up until that point in, and, and we might as well turn there, we'll get back to Matthew 5. 
But when you read the Genesis account of creation in Genesis 1, all the way through, God would create and um, Genesis 1, 4. God created the light. God saw the light was good. Look at verse 10. God called the dry land earth. He called the seas. And God saw that it was good. 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, etc., etc. God saw that it was good. 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. It's just kind of a throwaway light. Oh, yeah, he made the stars also. He spoke it into existence. And if you go down, you'll see in verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Everything God does is good. And then you get to Genesis 2, 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. So that means someone who comes alongside and corresponds to him, compliments him. It's not, a, it's not a pejorative term. It's not a term of weakness. That term is actually used of God. God is our helper. But it's a, compliment, a complementarian situation. Uh, they, they, were, they were to fit each other. It was a good thing. It was not good for the man to be alone. A lot of people were single. They struggle with being single because they're lonely. And even if you're single at this point in your life, you've got to be in relationship. It's just how it works. If you look back in Genesis 1, and you look at verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so this is real foundational stuff. God created the world, and he created two genders. That's it. And then you've got marriage, uh, 2.18, down to the end of the chapter. Look at 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Marriage is man and woman, period. God holds the copyright on marriage. God holds the trademark. God owns marriage. God invented marriage. 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why? Because there was no sin. There had been no sin in the world. There was absolute innocence. It was an absolute situation of utter perfection. Utter perfection. And then, as we read on, the serpent is going to come and he's going to lie. And here's what he always says. Basically, what he always says is he throws doubt on what God has said. He always casts doubt on what God has said. So he tempts the woman. 
This is three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God has said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Watch this. You will not die. That's his primary MO. He always says that you cannot trust what God's word says. Always. I don't care what situation you're facing, you're going to have doubt whether or not, if you're looking at a promise of God in the scripture, he's going to put doubt in your heart. Yeah, can I really trust this promise? God came through before and he came through before. What if he doesn't come through this time? God loves to be trusted. He loves it. He loves it. When you're in a tough marriage, and it's possible to be in a tough marriage, it's tough, possible to be in a hard marriage, in a difficult measure, marriage, and everything within you wants to run and wants to leave. But did you not make a commitment? And did you not make some vows before family and friends and Almighty God? That makes it a covenant. You see, but the culture says, that's not a problem. That's okay. Don't worry about it. No, this is serious. This is serious. When, when God's command, when any of God's commands are broken, there are residual consequences. It's like throwing a pebble into a still pond. I didn't forget Matthew 5. Let's go over there. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is going to talk about marriage and he's going to talk about adultery. 527. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said. Again, Matthew 527. And this is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust, the idea here is looking at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The thing about the commandments, it's just not, God just cuts through everything. Well, I've never committed adultery. Yeah, but... Have you wanted to in your heart? Hebrews uh, 4, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. See, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So Jesus goes right to the heart. Now, does this mean if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, well, gosh, I've already committed the adultery, I might just as well go ahead. No. No, it's obviously not saying that. But it is saying that God is not just looking at exterior, he's not just looking at behavior, he's looking at heart and he's looking at motive. And then he says this, if your right eye makes you stumble, put on sunglasses. That's not what he says. 
there is a concept in 1 Timothy 3. Um, there are requirements for those who would be elders in the church. Uh, all the requirements and all the men are to be elders. Once again, that's out of vogue. But it's what the Lord says. God has called men to lead the family. God has called men to lead the church. Doesn't obviously mean that ladies don't have leadership skills and all, but God has set the family and the church to be governed a certain way by men who are in submission to him and his word. And Okay. What you've got here in 1 Timothy 3, he gives requirements for being an elder. You look for these kind of men with these kind of character traits. He doesn't talk about their net worth. He doesn't talk about their education. He talks about their character. And one of the things that he says in 1 Timothy 3 is that he must be the husband of one wife. Literally, that is, he must be a one-woman kind of man. That's the heart of it. A one-woman kind of man. I'm to be a one-woman kind of man with my mind. With my mind. That's where the battle rages, is in the mind, isn't it? So you see a pretty girl walking down the road, and what do you do? I mean... You see her, you can't avoid seeing her, but you got to learn, and what you want to do is dwell and gaze, and, but you got to train yourself. You see that, there she is, pretty girl, and then you look away. Why? Because you're a one-woman kind of man. You don't want to linger. You're going to get yourself in trouble. I'm to be a one-woman kind of man with my eyes. With my eyes. Not just with my mind. Because you see, if I linger, then there are going to be all kinds of things that are going to start happening in my mind. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> temptation occurs in the mind, in the thought life. So I've got to learn to be a one-woman kind of man with my mind. That means I'm careful what I put into my mind. I'm careful what I watch. I'm careful, you get it. I've got to be a one-woman kind, of, one, one kind of man with my eyes. You, you know that old hymn, that classic hymn, I Only Have Eyes For You, <laughs> written by the Flamingos in 56. <laughs> shabop, shabop. Ooh. Shabop, shabop. Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> it's actually a great song. Are the stars out tonight? I can't tell if they're cloudy or bright because I only have eyes for you. If you have sons or grandsons, they watch you like a hawk. They know what you believe, and they know you got a Bible with your name on it, embossed in gold. But they're going to watch you. They watch me to see what I really believe. <clears throat> My son John told me one time at a stoplight, <clears throat> excuse me, I've told this before. Some gal is walking across the crosswalk, you know, gosh, not enough of this, not, a lot of that. <laughs> She's walking by, she gets to the other side and uh, I'm waiting for the light and John says, you know, Dad, I watch you all the time. I said, really? He goes, yeah. Because I've been to your conference and I know what you teach. 
That's what he said. I was watching you to see if you'd look at that girl, Dad. I said, you know, and he said, you didn't look. I said, I know, and one of the reasons I didn't look is that you were sitting there. <laughs> but the issue is, would I look if, she, if you weren't sitting there? Uh, and I'm going to be honest with you. That was either part of that conversation or another conversation that we had. But the principle is the same. I said, John, it shouldn't matter who's there. You see? I got to train myself to look away. Now, do I want to look? Yeah. She's attractive. She is. She's sexy. Sure, I want to look. But I got to train myself to go against my natural instincts. You see? That's part of growing in Christ. It's not easy, but it's a discipline that has to be developed. I'm to be a one-woman kind of man with my hands. You uh, guys get in trouble when they start touching Paul and women. We got this whole thing going on now. Guys in Hollywood are being taken down. Pastors are being taken down. Why? Because they're not a one-woman man with, with their hands. Um, mind, eyes, hands, mouth. You got to be careful what you say to women. Don't make sexual innuendos. Don't make dirty jokes. You're a man of God. You belong to Christ. Let all filthy speech depart from you, but only such a word full of grace and truth. You see? You're above that. You ought to be... <laughs> Your goal is to be clean in these areas so that if you were ever accused of Sexual harassment, your co-workers would fall to the ground in hysterical laughter. Not him. He's a one-woman kind of man. Now, you do that overnight in a microwave? No, it takes a long time. And do you always hit it right? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I struggle. You'll struggle with that. I'll struggle with it until I die. But when you sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you get back on the wagon. I'd be a one-woman kind of man with my feet. Oh, this is a great movie. You've got to see this movie. Oh, it's just incredible. And the next thing you know, you've got, you know, all kinds of crud going on, all these naked bodies and all that. And oh, oh, well, I wonder what the deeper artistic meaning is here. <laughs> it's porn. It's crap. Get out of there. What do you do with your feet? You flee. Flee from immorality. You don't hang around and look it out. Look, check it out for its deeper meaning so that you can relate to the culture. Don't put that in your mind. You say, why, why would you live like that? Because I've got a family, and I want to keep my family intact. I want to keep my marriage intact. I want to keep the trust level with my wife intact. I want my kids to believe what I teach, and if I don't live out what I teach, they're not going to believe it. You see, there are ramifications. So Jesus hits this in Matthew 5. He's nailing it, if I could ever finish the text. And that's on me that I haven't finished it, but let, let's read it. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with the intent to lust has already committed it in his heart. So if your right eye makes you stumble, and he's using hyperbole here. 
He's, he's using excessiveness to make a point. Your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Yes, it is. 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of a divorce. Ah, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, fornication, pornea, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word used here, except for the reason of unchastity, the scriptures teach marriage is permanent. The exception is what's called here unchastity. It's the Greek word pornea which means any kind of illicit sexual activity. He could have used the word moikia, which is adultery. But it's a broader word. So any kind of illicit sexual relationship outside the marriage, there is the option, Jesus says, for divorce. Now, you don't have to take the option. You can seek to rep reconcile, and hopefully you would, and that could happen. But when it's continual and when it is systematic and when it, at, at, there are points when it's legitimate. You've also got 1 Corinthians 7, which would give abandonment, desertion. But marriage is to be permanent. You, you, you see, well, you can see the residual effects of what happens when we step outside the marriage relationship. Over the break, um, I have, I've been working on, I did a book a long time ago in 1990 called Point Man. And it'll be 30 years old in 2020. So we're doing a revision that will come out Father's Day in 2020. And my editor, Larry Libby, and I, he had a little bit of surgery. I had some surgery, and we're both kind of recovering. And about a week after Christmas, we're both kind of feel like we're back. So he shoots me an email. Yeah, I'm going to send you chapter one, Steve. And, you know, he's... Check this, check this, check this. And he said, hey, redo those statistics because they're 30 years old. They were good statistics, but I got to update them. I spent a solid week updating those statistics. Um, why did it take you so long? Can't you just Google everything? Well, yes and no, because when you, when you do that, you got to go check the sources and you got to make sure the study was, I mean, if you're going to publish it, it better be right. So I spent a solid week going through all kinds of stuff on these statistics. And uh, here was the new list I came up with. Nearly one out of two marriages end in divorce. Actually, it's between 41 and 43%. But generally speaking, that, no, that, that number is acceptable. Now, that was used back in 1990. Here's a new one. Almost 42 million adults in the U.S. have been married more than once, up from 22 million in 1980. That's a big increase. How many of those divorces were for adultery? We don't know. Because you see, one of the things that changed in our country is that we cheapened the laws because we don't think marriage is important anymore. It used to be in this country, you could not divorce your spouse without their consent. Can you imagine such a thing? But it's how it was. But in the late 60s, someone came up with no-fault divorce. And then everybody else fell in line. And now it's easier to divorce your wife than it is to fire an employee. It's just any reason. It's a whim. It's a whim. We're done. 
1960, only 4% of mothers had never been married. By 2011, it increased to 44%. Why is that? It's called sexual immorality. It's called lowering the standard. And what happens? Tell me what happens to those moms who have kids and don't have a man in the home. It's not good, is it? It's not good. They're in a position of financial weakness. They're stressed out. They're easily taken advantage of. Their children are, are disadvantaged because there's not a father figure in the home to provide and support and to teach and to instruct and to discipline and to love and to model. And then that, all the ramifications of that, you see, there's a reason God gave the commands. It was for our good, he said in Deuteronomy 5, and it is for our good. Back in 1960, uh, 1960 most teen moms were married because girls would get married in their teens. An estimated 15% of births to moms ages 15 and 19 were unmarried teens. So back in 60, 15% of the births to teen moms were to unmarried teens. Teens, 85%, they were married. Today it's flipped. 89% of births are to unmarried mothers in that age group. That's huge. Teens and young adults think it is more immoral not to recycle than to view porn. That's a fact. Teens and young teens who have been um, <laughs> indoctrinated since they were in kindergarten about the earth, Uh, in the planet, and, you know, you get it. Uh, where are they now? They'll recycle. They think it's more immoral to not recycle than to watch porn. 62% of teens and young adults have received a sexually explicit image, and 41% have sent one. It's called sexting. Let me make four statements tonight. You want an outline? Here's an outline. The first statement is this, and this comes out of Point Man. And it'll remain in Point Man. This stuff will not be revised. First statement is this. War has been declared on the biblical family. <clears throat> What's the biblical family? It, it's what God says a family is in Genesis. It's a husband, and it's a wife. And they have children. And they're raising them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. They love their kids, they train their kids, they're committed to each other, they're under the word of God. Now, that can be a blended family, you've had a previous marriage. I just heard this week of, uh, of a young gal I've known since she was this high. And tough marriage situation, you know. You know, when you talk about divorce, you gotta be careful. Because not everyone who's divorced wanted the divorce. Now that there's no fault divorce. Now see, if you're the guilty party, you commit sexual immorality and you leave, uh, that's on you. Now, look, we, we all have our faults and all that. We all understand that. 
But if you're the guilty party that commits adultery, seeks the divorce, and goes after it and has a hard heart toward God, you're the guilty party. The one that you have divorced who wanted to reconcile and put it all together, they're in a whole different camp. Doesn't that make sense? Well, she didn't want that divorce. Some rough years. She just got engaged to a guy. Had a similar thing happen to him with his wife. And I know the family. This made my week that they got engaged. It's going to be really neat. That's a biblical family, you see. War's been declared on the biblical family. Those are the Genesis passages. Now let me give you a quote from James Dobson, 1980. This is as up-to-date today as it was back then. Dobson said, the Western world stands at a great crossroad in its history, in my opinion, our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. I believe with everything within me that husbands hold the key to the preservation of the family. And they do. They do. That's why we're talking about this stuff. And by the way, did you catch that in those stats? The divorce rate among those over 55 has doubled. Doubled. Now, the divorce rate among the younger, the younger ones, that's still higher. But that tells me a lot of grandpa and grandmas with, uh, who, who are members of churches uh, that preach the gospel and all that, they're, they're divorcing. You, uh, we got to work on this stuff. It doesn't matter if you've been married four weeks or four years or 44 years. We can't take a vacation on this stuff. War's been declared on the biblical family. Here's the second statement. Satan has two goals in his war in the family. Satan has two goals in his war in the family. Number one, to effectively alienate and sever a husband's relationship with his wife. To effectively alienate and sever a husband's relationship with his wife. He'll do that over time, but at a point you just say, oh, I'm out of here, this, forget it. The, I, I think it's safe to say the majority of Christian marriages that get divorced, I think a case could be made. It's not over adultery. It's just over other stuff. Because it's hard, it's difficult, it's exhausting. But know this, he wants to, he wants you and your wife, I don't care how long you've been married, he wants you guys to wind up divorced as you sit here tonight. His second strategy is to effectively alienate and sever a father's relationship with his kids. So what he wants to do is divide the, the, the cornerstone foundational institution that God has established, the family. He wants to absolutely wreck havoc. Alienate and sever the relationship with your wife and do the same thing with your kids. That's his goal. And the way that it happens is when we decide we're not going to obey his commandments because they're too hard and it's too difficult and I'm worn out and I'm fatigued. I'm not saying this stuff is easy. It's hard. 
But we have a helper. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. This is a battle. Third statement. The big picture is that Satan desires to neutralize the man. He desires to neutralize the man. Now, how does he attempt to neutralize a Christian man? I want to make this statement to you. In our age, in our time, his primary weapon to neutralize a man spiritually is through pornography. Is it not? Twelve years ago this past week, Steve Jobs held up the iPhone for the first time. That's a blessing and it's a curse. I've got different translations of the Bible in my iPhone. I got biblical commentaries. If I'm stuck in an airport, uh, you know, for three hours, I can, I can do my work on a sermon. I can do my study. I'm over here. I can do a word study. I can do Greek word studies. I can do it all on my phone. Or if I'm by myself in a hotel room and there's nobody around and I'm in Vegas and I think what, stay, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, I can start hitting the porn after I've been to the strip clubs. Now, some will say, wait a minute, you're, you're old school. Listen, studies show that porn doesn't lead to adultery. Uh-huh. Well... God did a study. It's in Ezekiel. In fact, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read this because in Grudem's <clears throat> chapter on pornography, he nails this. I'm just going to quote him. He says, one of the prophets in the Old Testament shows an example of the relationship between looking at visual images and lusting after what one sees and then committing sinful actions. Okay. Speaking of the city of Jerusalem in a parable of a woman called Oholibah, Ezekiel says the following. All right. So pay close attention here. This is kind of a metaphor. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waist with flowing turbans on their head, virile, strong, masculine warriors, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. So she's looking at these images. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea, and the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. There is a connection between visual images and committing immoral acts. It's cause and effect. This porn is the primary way that he gets. At times, this stuff can get overwhelming because of the pervasiveness of evil that we're living in. You ever feel that way? It's just astonishing. 
You, you read headlines and it's evil after evil after evil after evil. And you can't read too much of that stuff. You got to cleanse your mind with scripture. And you got to get your perspective back and you got to recalibrate. So there is a website, a ministry called Covenant Eyes, and they do a great job. I'll talk with them a little bit more. But they uh, offer some pornography um, statistics, a whole bunch of them. 80 per, uh, 90% of teens and 90% of, 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. They're okay with it. Just 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe porn is wrong. So half the people over 25, they think it's okay. And here's the stat, teens and young adults, 13 to 24, believe not recycling is worse than doing pornography. 43% of senior pastors and youth pastors say they have struggled with pornography in the past. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and are currently struggling. That's more than 50,000 church leaders in the United States. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 51% of male students, 32% of female students first viewed porn before their teenage years. Sixty-eight percent of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover over the internet. You got to be careful of the internet. Fifty-six. What? By the way, the internet. Why would that happen? Oh, you remember your first love in high school? But well, you should have taken it to your prom, but you didn't, and you've regretted it ever since. And then you know, you know, I wonder what she's doing. I wonder how she's getting along. And all of a sudden, you. Hi, this is Tom. Oh, hi. Hi, this is Candy. Oh, how old are you? I'm 94. Uh, and all of a sudden, what's that? That's an escape from reality. She's not a net funicello. I mean, this isn't beach blanket bingo. This is real life and you're a Christian man. 70% of wives, 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with sexually transmitted diseases. I know more than one woman, you know, Christian woman, loves the Lord, has a Christian husband, real involved in church. She goes to get her annual physical and then he comes back and says, wow, you've got a, this disease. What? you got this disease. That can't be. Yeah, I think you picked it up at the Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> no, no, that's not the explanation, is it? How can that be? I have never been unfaithful. But Joe Blow over here with his name written on his Bible in gold, when he's on a business trip, you can be sure your sin will find you out. Prolonged exposure to pornography leads to diminished trust between intimate couples. Diminished trust 
belief that promiscuity is the natural state, and lack of attraction to family and child raising. Why? Because porn is an escape from reality. It's Disneyland. It's la-la. It's not real life. And the more you get into porn, the more difficulty you're going to have with sexual arousal. Because you're used to fake images. And by the way, what satisfies you today won't satisfy you in five years. Fourth statement. God has the solution. There is a way out. Um, there is a way out. This is the power of Christ. It's the power of the gospel. It's the greatest news in all the world. There are guys in here that have been addicted, addicted to porn for years. And by the power of Christ, they've been set free. There are a lot of ministries out there for guys struggling with sexual addiction. They're led by guys who have been in sexual addiction and have been set free by the power of Christ. This does not have to continue. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. I'm going to give you the solution out of Scripture. And there are three parts to it. I'm going to give you three A's. The first one that is required is authenticity. Authenticity. Instead of living a lie, covering it up, I'll never do it again, Lord. I promise I'll never do it again. And what's going to happen? You're going to do it again. Um, the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There are some sins you can't fight off by yourself. Authenticity is admitting your sin. Authenticity is confessing your sin. It's being real. Read David in Psalm 51. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. You, you, you know that. Had her husband killed, set up for a year. He covered it, and then Nathan the prophet calls him out. And then in Psalm 51, David's repentant, and he's crying his guts out. Thomas Watson said, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. It's the dry heaves. It's not a, I'm sorry, just flippantly. It's from your gut. You're sick of what you did. It's reprehensible, those of you have harmed. And, and he says, ultimately against you and you only I have sinned. And then he says, create in me a new heart, O Lord. And God does it. The verse here would be James 5.16. You say, Steve, I've confessed my sin over and over again. I'm sure you have, and you have been cleansed by Christ. But I still struggle. Yeah, so you see, there's another step here. James 5.16 says this. It says, Therefore, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. <clears throat> I've only seen one path to being freed from pornography. And that is when a guy gets so desperate and so sick of it that he goes to a trusted brother in Christ, a mature brother that he knows will keep their mouth shut and can hold the confidence. It might be a pastor, but someone who is trustworthy and to that brother, they confess, but they don't want anyone to know about. 
You take what's in the darkness and you bring it into the light and you don't cover it and you don't minimize it. You lay it all out there and say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I've done for years. You confess your sin to a brother. You say, I can't do that because he's going to reject me. He might tell somebody all that. I mean, he's going to have nothing to do with me. No, I'm going to tell you something. You go to a mature believer in Christ, they're not going to reject you because they got, they've had their own stuff. What are they going to do? They're going to embrace you. They're going to commend you for doing something that is so hard and so difficult and being so authentic before God. They're for you. That's the first step. What's the second step? Accountability. Because what the enemy does, he isolates a Christian man. And as long as you're isolated from other believers, you're in trouble. He calls you out of a herd and he takes you down. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. You're accountable. I, I, in Point Man, I, I, I mean, back in the 80s, I read something that Chuck had done, and he was in a, with a group of guys each week, and he said, we ask each other certain questions each week. Have you looked at any immoral material this week? And they look at each other in the eye and, you know, have you? Have you practiced integrity in all your financial dealings or not? See, there's no missing around. And there, there were several other questions. And each week, they'd ask each other. And the last question was, have you just lied to me? That's great. Because, see, we, won't, we, we don't want to come clean. The third step is accessibility. And this is where something like Covenant Eyes comes in. You can sign up for Covenant Eyes with your friend, your accountability partner. And uh, at the end of each month, they will get a readout of every website you have been on. They'll get a detailed list of your history. And you'll get one of theirs each month. Can I tell you something else? Why would you erase your history if you're walking with Christ? Your, your wife should have the freedom to check your history anytime she wants. Your kids should have the freedom to check your history anytime they want. Through God's goodness and grace and mercy and we can grow. We can grow. And we can be set free. He's not against us, guys. He's for us. And see, it's better for everyone when we're transparent and real and honest and dealing with our stuff. Nobody in here is perfect. We're all sinners. What, what was it that John Newton said? The slave trader who had raped countless women 
murdered slaves, throwing them over the deck into the sea for years and years, who eventually was converted and became a pastor and wrote Amazing Grace. What was it he said his whole life? I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Let's pray together. We thank you for this truth, Lord. This is hard stuff. And the enemy loves to condemn us. And he has so much that we have done to condemn us about. But, 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 Romans 8, 1. God says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a truth. How liberating. So, Father, do a work in each man's life. As we walk out of here, as we drive home, let each man know the next step he needs to take in this journey to save his life, to save his family to be used of you and to have the joy of his salvation restored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.